hope that's not a hostage. Welcome to the latest episode of Real Early. I'm your host, Larry Sternshine. On today's show, I'm joined by film and entertainment writer Fred Topel. I've been friends with Fred for many years, so it was a real pleasure having him on my show. What I really love about this episode is how much great advice Fred gives to anybody trying to make it as an entertainment writer. We discuss how it's gotten harder since he started, but Fred has tips that may just help you make it in the business. Not only that, we talk about him growing up in Maryland his experiences going to the video store, and working in a movie theater, and so much more. Another great episode. And without further wait, Fred Topel. Fred, thank you for joining me on my show. You're welcome. Thanks for asking. It's great to talk with fellow Vern fans. Yeah, uh, Outlaw Vern is a, 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 a movie reviewer online, and it's got a very robust uh, uh fans like uh, like a lot of fans and that's kind of how we met was on his uh talkbacks i guess you'd call it <laughs> yeah uh yeah in the, in the comment section uh under his reviews and then of course social media social yeah. media connected uh everyone more immediately than those comment sections uh yeah and you're actually the second person i think that I've had on my show that I've met through Vern's site. So that's pretty cool. Who was the first? Mark Palermo. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're number two. So welcome. Thank you. Uh, so we're recording this around Christmas time and you have a this great thing where it's Hans Gruber falling from the top <laughs> of the building and every day gets closer and closer to to the bottom and i was wondering not not the question you think i'm gonna ask it's more what are some of the or do you have any christmas movie traditions that you do every year die hard is the only one i make sure to watch every year and that's probably as much because it's one of my favorite movies of all time and easy to watch anytime um in LA fortunately they also show it uh theatrically not just this year which is a 35th anniversary but every year it's either the new Bev or one of the repertory theaters this year uh the newly reopened Egyptian theater is going to show it on the 23rd there are other oh uh and a Christmas special I like to watch every year is the Beavis and Butthead Christmas special from the 90s. I actually have it on DVD, but I think you can find it on YouTube for uh, recorded off MTV. Um, they do. Uh, and it's a wonderful life spoof and a Christmas Carol spoof that uh, I just. Uh, yeah, I just think those are great. And the letters they read, which were actual letters written in by fans in the 90s. Uh, and they make fun of those too. Other Christmas movies that I don't watch 
every year, but I'm certainly aware of and fond of them. Um, a Christmas story I was obsessed with when I was a kid, and I don't think I watched it only in December. Uh, that was long before it became a TBS 24-hour staple. Um, I like Gremlins. I like Scrooged. Um, Christmas Vacation is not my favorite Griswolds movie, but I always love the Griswolds. The first one is always going to be my favorite with the road trip to Wally World. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure at midnight I'm going to remember a Christmas favorite that I forgot. Obviously, anything written by Shane Black has a Christmas element. Uh, so Long Kiss Goodnight, Lethal Weapon. Um, First Blood, you can see Christmas in the background. I think there was more of an element in scenes that were eventually deleted. Uh but at one point there was a decision, a conscious decision to set it at Christmas with lights in the background and everything. Sure. Uh, oh, and of course, Die Hard 2 is also a Christmas movie. Yeah. And uh, Invasion USA is another good one. Right. With, uh, I just watched that one for the first time last year. Oh. And it's a. Uh, what a treat to see it with fresh eyes. Yeah. It's talk about a movie they don't quite make anymore. And if they did, it's. You know, something you probably don't see too often. The 80s were a special time. <laughs> um, you know what's funny? You mentioned Gremlins. Uh, the first time I saw Die Hard on the big screen was a double feature with Gremlins at the Music Box in Chicago. Yeah. It was the greatest Christmas movie double feature of all time. <laughs> it was amazing. Well, the new Bev only once showed Die Hard followed by Die Hard 2. And that was a Christmas Eve double feature. Uh, I'd been waiting for, and it was highly rewarding. I think they've switched. They usually pair it with the silent partner, which is also good. And that, that for a while was rarer to see. I think it's got a Blu-ray now. I'm not familiar with The Silent Partner. What oh. is that movie? Uh, the Silent Partner is a bank robbery movie where uh, Elliot Gould is a bank teller and a guy in a Santa suit uh, pushes a robbery note to him. Um, and while he, while the teller is filling the robber's bag he decides to keep a little for himself too and then the uh the robber realizes through news reports when the bank says how much they were taken for uh that he that he didn't get the full haul uh so forces the teller to be his silent partner in another robbery oh yeah, that sounds actually uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, there's there's a lot of '70s movies I've, that are like I am just discovering for the first time that they even exist. The '70s is probably like one of the biggest blind spots, weirdly, for a big movie guy like myself. <laughs> I just so. remembered. I can't uh, can't believe uh, it didn't come to me immediately. But Bad Santa, of course. Oh yeah, that's a good one too. 
Uh, do you ever see the sequel? Is that any good? It's not. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. It's, you know, a lot of those long-awaited sequels, they tend to forget who the characters were in the first place. I wouldn't say they forgot who the Billy Bob Thornton character was, but they just, they didn't come up with situations that were funny or raunchy enough or tried to coast too well on um, callbacks. What year is that? 20... 16 or so probably somewhere around there already forgotten it it is 2016 so good call on that one <laughs> <laughs> so i remember how long ago it was more than i remember the movie yeah it's you know that was a big gap between the first and the second one too i'm seeing here so mm -hmm. I, I could see how that could you know lose the tone when you wait too long yeah, and yeah. it's a totally different team. Terry Zwigoff obviously didn't want to do a sequel. And I understand Billy Bob Thornton wanting to do another one with that character. Uh, and they they tried. Well, you know, not everything works. But at least, you know, they gave it the good old college try, as they say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so uh, those who aren't, aren't necessarily familiar, you do a lot of movie writing. Um and it seems like you do movie reviews, TV show reviews, interviews. Uh, what do you like doing the most? Um, I used to say I like uh, talking to the filmmakers and actors the most. Um, I'm not sure if I still like that more than reviewing. Really? Uh, that's a good question, and it's making me think about how my uh, tastes have changed. I mean, I still like having the ability to do both. Uh, I I am a film and TV critic. I am an entertainment journalist, so I'll always do both, and I guess that's the joy. I never have to choose. If there is a good opportunity to talk to someone, I'll take it, and if it's only to see the movie and review it, I'll take it and sometimes I'll do both. Yeah, that's great that you have that opportunity that you you know, you've had um to continue to be able to write for various sites and continue to do that, which is you know, it's probably not as easy now to get into the business more than ever before, would you say? No, uh it wasn't easy when I started and it's only it's only gotten worse. I mean, the thing that's probably gotten worse is the exploitation of sites that will ask new writers to write for nothing uh, just for the opportunity. And yeah. I always try to uh, encourage new writers. That's a It's a difficult thing to navigate because when you're starting out, you do need to build a portfolio, but you can't let that go on too long because ultimately, if you're providing material for an outlet, they have to pay you for it. And it, if, if it's good enough that they want to keep publishing it, then it's obviously worth something to them. So uh, yeah. Starting out, uh, there's also now all the pressures to be on 
every form of social media. Uh, I predate Twitter uh, in my career. And now, of course, TikTok is a component. Uh, all of those things come and go. Uh, you may or may not remember Vine and Periscope for, for a hot minute. They were the most important aspect of an online uh, story and uh, everyone uh, everyone needed that um, for their profile. Um, I think, I mean, I've heard throughout my 24 year career and I'm sure people uh, before me, uh, veterans longer than me heard that print was dead and everything was gonna be video. And it always seems to, Print always seems to keep living. People are always going to need at least text to go with a video, but really there's always a need for written material. Uh, so I don't personally subscribe to the idea that you need to have a TikTok and you need to be doing all of these other components and bells and whistles. Because um, those are those are always so flighty. Uh yeah, they always eventually fall out of favor. And yeah, it's certainly, I'm sure, it, I know it's certainly a struggle for outlets to profit off of online material, written or otherwise. Um, but, but if they can figure that out, quality always reigns. When you're doing stuff now, are you like a freelancer or do you actually have a home that you do most of your well, stuff at? I've always been a freelancer because that's how I like to work. Uh, luckily for the past four years now, UPI has been my main outlet. That's where my reviews run and most of my interviews. I do still freelance. Um, but one, if I have one outlet that wants everything I do, that's great. <laughs> that makes my job a lot easier. Um, and but yes uh i i always wanted the opportunity to do as much as i could and somebody who's like uh now is trying to get in like what is what does somebody have to do now is it really just writing as much as you can or is it somebody you know because there's, it feels like there's more people online trying to be writers than ever before. It feels like I could be wrong, but like, how does somebody like? I don't know how people now get into it. You know, uh, well, there are, I'm sure, more people trying to write than ever, and uh, the internet and social media were great equalizers in a way. Um, I think it always comes down to quality you have to be good enough for to be a value to an outlet um i wouldn't say write as much as you can i think granted i i started out in 99 2000 so it was a different landscape and it's been a while since I've had to really pound the pavement. Um, but I think no matter how many 
other bells and whistles uh, become components of the industry, uh, it's really simple. You have to reach out to someone that has a need for what you're doing. Uh, and I think that the most direct and simple way possible is best to cut through all of the clutter. Like if there's a site you want to write for, you find the editor and pitch and contact them, cold call, email them um, and show them your work. Uh, I think you need to do that a lot and cast a wide net because uh, one, all of those editors are uh, very much inundated with lots of stuff, not just people looking for work. They've got their own staff. They've got asks from all the studios. They've got their own bat bosses to field. Uh, so there is an aspect of luck to reaching someone at the right time. Um, but also not limiting yourself. If you, th if you think only one site is the place you can write, uh, and that doesn't work out, then, uh, then that's, it. But if you cast a wide net, you uh, you might even be surprised where you find a fit that you might not have considered before. I should add, when you're contacting editors, do not contact them on their social media pages. Nobody is going to appreciate you sliding into their DMs. Be sure to keep all your business correspondences by email. Well, I don't want to speak for editors because I don't know, but I would imagine you have to stick to the point and cut to the chase. This is what you want to do for them. And this is what you're offering, because if you add a lot more hype and here's my TikTok profile and all that, you're just giving them more work. I mean, at a certain point, they're either going to want you or not. So uh, I mean, do show your credentials, send your resume, send a few samples of your work, but uh, but keep it to the point. I think one one thing that's made it a lot harder, it seems, I can tell from just what I see on online and what other colleagues of mine are experiencing. Unfortunately, with all of the new access, to job boards and stuff like LinkedIn, scammers are flooding it. So you probably have to be a lot more discerning now of what a scam job is. And unfortunately, it seems like those scammers have perfected how to get ranked so high that most of the jobs you probably see now are scams. So the I would always say you have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find the right uh, fit for you. And it's probably even more frogs now as you wade through all the scams. Uh, but you learn the red flags to look for and weed them out. When you say uh, scams, are they just, how do they make money off of these things? And how do you know that it's a scam going in? Well, I, I, I think they make money by, you know, they find enough new writers to provide them content for free or next to nothing that that they turn a profit before those writers either quit or they always find a new a, a new stream of suppliers 
uh, red flags, uh, certainly if they don't mention the, uh, the rate in the ad, it's probably not very good because if they, if they have a budget and can pay, they'll, they'll say so. Um, if they're describing a lot of responsibilities for a freelance position, then they're really trying to, they're, they're trying to get free staff. Um, as much as I love freelancing and that's how I choose to run my business, uh, I certainly recognize what a staff job entails and I'm not going to do that for not full-time rates. Yeah, that is something that uh, I, you know, talk to uh, people in my work or people I know we have conversations about uh, pay and stuff and a lot of the chatter out there right now is absolutely right where don't do more than what you're getting paid for because they're just cheating you out of out of stuff so you always want to make sure whatever that pay is going to be that's what you're going to end up doing yeah Which, and my certainly my first year and probably longer i was doing articles for free uh just so I could show that here I am on this red carpet, here I am interviewing this person, here I am reviewing this movie, and I can do this uh, for your site. Uh, and I worked day jobs to support myself while I did that. And I recognize how lucky it is if uh, it only took a year before I started finding uh, well-paying enough clients uh, that I could support myself as a writer. And of course, in 24 years, there's ups and downs and some periods I did more uh, non-writing work than others to make up the difference. Uh, and that's fine too. Uh, luckily, one of my uh, big skills is typing. So I could do transcription work, which is very flexible. Uh, it would be hard to be a journalist and have a uh, day job with hours and there are a lot I know a lot of colleagues that do that that might even work nine to five and only go to screenings at night and can only do interviews on weekends and if that's uh, there's nothing wrong with that either if uh yeah sometimes it, you just kind of have to to do whatever it sort of takes but also to be able to you know, provide for yourself as well, you know, and there's, it sounds like there's many different paths you can go. Um, as long as you, you know, if you have the drive and, and uh, whatnot, you could still be successful in doing this. Yeah. And I think what you're getting at is you have to treat it like a business. Uh, yes. It's fun to watch movies. It's really fun to talk to directors and filmmakers and actors uh but if you if you only treat it as something you like to do then it will only be a hobby you have to handle the business part of it which is a reality and it might not be fun to handle money matters but that is a major component of what it takes my my show is is strictly just like a hobby thing cuz making money on podcasts is, is very difficult. Uh, but if I wanted to, 
like make this thing a little bit more than that. I mean, there's there's things you can do. It's just it's a lot of lot of work. And uh, so if you know, but if you like you said, if you want to actually kind of do it, you know, treating it like like you're the boss of your yourself, and you you know you gotta do all that kind of stuff. It's it's worth it. Um, well, it, uh, you you just uh, you just explained it perfectly. You did the math of what it would take to make this your business, and you decided it it isn't worth it to you, and that's perfectly valid. Uh, you should. Uh, there are probably a lot of people that that don't do that analysis or or that sort of if you go into any business a hundred percent hope and just hope it turns out for you uh that's probably going to be a recipe for disappointment so if you're just writing and hoping that someone discovers your talent and wants to pay you that's not very likely you're going to have to do the business work of uh making your writing career a business and not just a hobby or you decide you just want to write for fun and that might limit some of the opportunities because some of the more high profile films or interview subjects might uh might only be going after certain types of outlets but uh that's always going to be the case no one has a hundred percent access no matter how big they are for sure uh so you've been doing this for 24 years and uh i want to know did writing was that something you always liked doing as a kid or did that sort of come about when you got a little bit older no i always liked to write um even uh I would uh, do creative writing when I was really little. I guess I started writing about film and doing movie reviews in high school and then continuing that uh, in college. And I, I did uh, dabble in screenwriting uh, to see if that was something I might be interested in. Uh, and I wasn't really, I, I found I was more passionate about writing about movies than writing movies myself. I, th I think I was that way too growing up. Cause I, I did, uh, when I went to college, I became a communications major and my minor was film studies. <laughs> and I was I it actually turns out I'm not very good at writing. That's what I've learned. <laughs> uh, but I have done writing stuff uh, afterwards. Like I was published in a newspaper for a little bit doing pro wrestling articles. Uh, that was fun. I got paid to try about that. Uh, but um, I'm always jealous of people who could like write really good movie reviews. Which um, you're you're one person that I like reading because I like. Uh, the the reviews that you write because they're very uh to the point there's not a whole there's not like too much of like here's my history with this particular franchise and then it's like you know when you go online you want to get a recipe and they tell you a whole story about the recipe before you get the recipe 
like i hate that <laughs> yeah me too uh thank you uh and yeah my goal is to be conversational so it sounds like sounds like uh it would sound when i'm talking to you although i can be much more articulate when i have a little bit of time to prepare the sentence structure and give enough context so you can see if uh if what i'm describing aligns with you or not but yeah not not really off topic tangents sure and where um where did you grow up i grew up near annapolis maryland and uh I mean, there was no real film industry there, although Baltimore, nearby there were film shoots in Baltimore and D.C. And actually, while I was growing up, they filmed Patriot Games for a week in Annapolis and oh. um, uh, Major League Two at the then newly built Camden Yards. Uh, but I always knew you know, to do film whatever i decided to do in film would mean going to hollywood and i went to film school at ithaca college which i loved and they had a semester in la program so i did that to confirm that i wanted to move to la and i so did i i felt at home as soon as i got here and then as soon as i graduated i drove from upstate new york to california with um a few college friends and yeah uh never even uh went back home for a bit after college and i'm skipping over one important aspect of my development which is when i from high school uh through a few years of college when i would come home for breaks i worked for the movie theater in my in annapolis that's still there harbor nine landmark is running it now but when i started there it was a small local family-owned chain called apex and i i also loved working for a movie theater whether it was just ushering or selling tickets uh the summer after of 96 i got trained to be a projectionist and i loved that yeah this was still in the film days, so I was learning how to run those giant platters that fed the film through the projector. Um, and I just loved being around movies. It felt like, um, you know, even even though it was just a small town local theater, you were part of everyone's night out and making sure the movies ran on time or the theaters were clean or they got their tickets okay. Uh, and that being close to movies that way had value. And even though I've moved to LA and become a part of the film industry myself, I still have really fond memories of, I guess it was a much simpler time to only have to worry about cleaning up a theater. <laughs> or selling tickets uh but uh that was a great time too now we, we've talked about this before but you know that i'm a really big fan of ping pong summer oh so yeah was was growing up in maryland like that movie 
Um, spending the summer in Ocean City was. Ocean City was a place my family went sometimes twice a summer, but at least once a summer. And that was purely because I and my sister too, but I don't even think she was as fanatical as about Ocean City as I was. Uh, just like those kids in that movie, it it seemed like the most fun place in the world, which uh, I guess we can thank my growing and maturing uh, to discover there are even better places than Ocean City, Maryland. But uh, How can that be? <laughs> but uh, yeah, definitely the boardwalk with those arcades and game rooms and restaurants. Um, I suppose uh, to maybe an even greater degree than my movie theater memories, a lot of that probably has to do with uh, the freedom and lack of responsibility. You know, like my parents did all of the work to book a condo in Ocean City and work all year so they could afford a summer vacation and take me to have, you know, what was the greatest week of my life, uh, just having fun and thinking it was paradise. Um, and I recognize with the movie theater too, yeah, it was fun uh, to have small responsibilities. I, I sometimes remind myself as much as nostalgic as I get for working in a movie theater, I was still a teenager living at home with my parents and remind myself the rest of that time in high school was not fun. So it's not like I want to go back. It is definitely better being a self-sufficient adult. For sure. but, I, but those moments of go, doing my shift at the movie theater uh, and then even going to see movies during the week when I wasn't working uh, were, were great little snippets of freedom. Was uh, movies big with your family or was that like a mostly a you thing um yes they were big with my family and they definitely became my defining characteristic uh, my mom always took us to movies and definitely instilled a love of movies in me my dad also certainly when we were little he loved to take us to whatever disney movie was reissued at the time um so that was a special thing for him. Uh, so it's sort of sad that they stopped doing that for families to have that experience. But once, I, I, I mean, I was in, I must have been single digits still when I started to become aware of what movies were coming out and I wanted to go see that. Uh, had to see Gremlins, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future. Um, and so, yeah, taking Fred to the movies was always a thing in my family. Did, did you have, um, uh, did you have cable growing up? Or was it just antenna? We had cable and I would definitely take movies off HBO and watch them over and over. And we, rented movies. I miss the local video stores that uh, got replaced by Blockbuster. Yeah. 
Was there a particular video store you remember going to? Uh huh. Yeah, there was a family-owned video store called Stallings, uh, and they would when I once I became a teenager, I I got so savvy, I would call them the day that new releases came out and ask them to hold something for me, and they would uh, because because I was a regular, uh, my, my family was essentially, this was even before I could drive, uh, I would ask them to hold it and then my parents would take me to pick it up. Um, but you know, Blockbuster would never reserve a movie for you, which, which come to think of it, how did they not think that they could sell a higher tier membership? And one of the perks was they'll hold a movie for you. That could have kept them in business. Uh, maybe uh, yeah I, I when I, I worked at Blockbuster for a period of time and for me though the, the funniest part was always when a movie wasn't available they'd ask me to go look in the return thing uh-huh. and then you'd go and open the thing and all these tapes would fall on you that was that was well, that was always that the, was the, that was the strategy I employed when Blockbuster became dominant and uh you did know that if uh, all the copies were out, you could ask them to look in the just returned. Yeah. I also really, uh, even after St- Stallings went out of business in the late 90s and that building is a dry cleaner now, unfortunately, uh, but there was uh, also a Tower Records and Video across from the movie theater that I worked at. So I would go to Tower Video a lot later in the 90s. Yeah, there was always that tower in the mall, at least by me. There was always... But I never went there, though, for some reason. I think it's because I I always thought, oh, man, this stuff's expensive. <laughs> but now I miss having that kind of stuff. Like, there's, you know... What was expensive? CDs? Uh, well, it seemed like it. I'm probably like now it was probably just because I was broke. Uh. Yeah, I mean, movie <laughs> rentals were competitive. What whatever it was in the '90s, two or three dollars. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't up to five bucks yet. What uh, were you allowed to rent R-rated movies when you were okay, a kid? Yes. Uh, so uh, that's probably a major uh, part of my film development. I never had restrictions for R-rated movies, so. Uh, I was probably younger than 10 when I saw The Terminator in Stripes. Uh, my parents were always happy to take me to Arnold or Stallone movies, uh, or that didn't bother them. I think A Fish Called Wanda, they were surprised, was a little more sexual than they thought it might be. They thought it would just be slapstick. Uh but still, there was never anything they said, you can't see that. The only limitation was, before I got into horror, I would probably be scared by most R-rated horror movies, or even PG horror movies. Poltergeist was still yeah. too much for me until I was about 11 or 12 and started reading Fangoria. So yep. I, I value that I always had freedom to explore whatever movie I wanted. Um, and I guess, as you can tell by those titles I mentioned, my tastes were still 
pretty juvenile. I mean, as sophisticated as RoboCop is, the idea of a robot cop obviously appeals to kids. I mean, they made a cartoon yep. out of that and Rambo. Uh, I mean, I just liked the hero saving the day and kicking ass. I mean, me too. Me too. And when I was growing up, my parents also didn't have any restrictions. So like I, I was watching stuff way too young. And I think a lot of it was because of my sister, because she was older than me. So we would sometimes watch like a scary movie together. So it was like, oh, I'm, you know, going to watch this because my sister will be there. And then sometimes she'd mess with me and tell me to close my eyes and open it right when something scary yeah, happened. The scary part. <laughs> um, I know what you mean, but I don't know if I think I was too young to see anything. I mean, in my mind, I was sophisticated enough at a young age to handle them. And I do think I was mature for my age. And there were definitely, I'm sure there were some movies that I didn't, that I understood a lot better when I got older. Um, but I don't think any movie messed me up because I was too young. But it's funny you know, making new friends as adults and learning that they had different restrictions growing up and like some of them are still discovering some of those r-rated 80s movies for the first time now because they were never allowed to see it and that's sort of foreign to me it's like well of course i saw die hard right when it came out i wanted to see the moonlighting guy save the building so my parents took me to die hard I, you know, I've, I'm noticing a lot from some of my younger friends uh, who are just having kids. And I asked them about, like, you know, what they think they might do when it comes to movies and what they'll let them do or watch. And they all feel like they want to not be as like our parents letting us watch whatever. They always feel like, oh, uh, he's lenient. Yeah, they're, it's, it's, it's interesting. And um, I wonder, though, I'll have to check in when those kids are older to see if that actually stuck or not or or whatnot. I mean, it seems hopeless now. How could you ever prevent a kid from seeing whatever that <laughs> they want through streaming or Internet or like I still I mean, I, I knew how to work the VCR better than my parents, so I could have always recorded anything but they still had to drive to the video store and rent it and drive to the theater so it was their decision to let me watch those but my niece now is the age I was when I saw Die Hard and I don't know if I could imagine showing her Die Hard right now not not that she has any interest and if my sister is listening to this uh don't don't worry she controls what my niece and nephew watch but i think my sister looks forward to you know one day having the kids experience my favorite movies and talk about them with me so far you know they're doing the pg ones like the back to the future and honey mm -hmm. i shrunk the kids and princess bride uh so they've got time uh and obviously it is up to the kids uh, a lot of kids would be much more sensitive to the violence in Die Hard than I was. Um, Is it just because of the environment they're growing up in now? I don't know. 
maybe it's just that as a 46 year old man, I see my 10 year old niece as much younger than I saw myself when I was 10. And I just wanted to see the new movie. Oh yeah. Um, and I, th I think too, growing up when we we're our age, it was much, it was much easier to see an R rated movie, but, um, on oh, television yeah. so the stuff was cut out but we still got to see the r-rated movie you know what i mean oh, or now everything is not like that anymore that's interesting yeah there really aren't tv edits of most movies and netflix and hbo max will show the full uncut version uh, but you're right. It was a lot easier to see an R-rated movie. I Once I was old enough to be dropped off at the movie theater, uh, I never got carded. Uh, sometimes my friends did, and I would buy the tickets for all of us. But I was 14 and bought a ticket to Basic Instinct. Now, maybe the theater should have been <laughs> stricter with that. Or maybe because I was a regular, it was just like, yeah, Fred's coming to see it. Uh, I know once you started working there, you could start working when you were 16. And I think a couple kids were 15. Uh, their parents had to sign off on R-rated movies because, of course, they would have to go into the theater to clean and be exposed to it. They they couldn't worry about, you know, making sure anyone under 17 wasn't scheduled into an R-rated theater. I do remember when my uh, mom allowed me to rent R-rated movies on my own. So they actually had to sign like a waiver at West Coast Video. I don't know if you remember West Coast Video, but uh, that was great. Cause then I could go in whenever I wanted to. Cause, hey, I got my uh, my bike now. I can bike ride to the <laughs> video store and I can rent the R-rated movie. It was awesome. <laughs> now it's just, now you can, now it's just like you just turn on your, your app and then you can just watch whatever you want. It's so different now than it was when we grew up. Yeah, and even once I started working at the movie theater, they were starting to crack down a lot more on underage kids going to see R-rated movies. So once I worked there, I had to card people buying tickets to R-rated movies because uh, that must have coincided with the political upheaval distraction getting people riled up about movies instead of what's actually going on in the world uh, what what year was this again i so started working at the movie theater in 94 okay and so maybe 94 95 they started saying anyone who looks young you, you have to card them or make sure their parents are with them so you were working in a theater when movies like pulp fiction came out Oh yeah, my uh, I will never have a better movie going night than October 14th because I went to see Shawshank Redemption and when it was over I thought, well, that was great. Hopefully whatever I see next will uh also be good, but there's no way it'll be as good as that. And then I went to see Pulp Fiction after Shawshank Redemption. And Pulp Fiction just changed my idea of what a movie could even be. So I know that for the rest of my life, like no two movies are going to pair together with quality and revolutionary 
game changing uh like that night i'm just thinking now like shawshank kind of has like an old movie flavor to it a little bit and pulp fiction's kind of got like the future of going on a little bit with like that kind of movie that's so that really makes an interesting double feature uh for those two especially since they're both great movies and like five-star classics and all that kind of stuff well, and, I mean, Shawshank was also just, I did not see the twist coming. So uh, that was exciting. Yeah, that would that would be exciting. I think, yeah, I think when I first saw that movie, there was a lot of like, a lot of like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, just a lot of like surprises and whatnot. And, you know, I still watch that movie now and I just think it's a perfect movie. Shawshank? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think Pulp Fiction's a perfect movie too. Yeah, like it's you know you just casually were like, I'm gonna go see this movie, and then I'm gonna go see this one, not knowing the classics they were gonna be until after you right. see them. That's a heck of and a double. That all, I mean, that also has to do with still being in my formative years. So it's a lot rarer that the older you get, uh, anything can have that formative effect on you anymore. I sometimes get comparable experiences going to film festivals and really discovering new things. Uh, Like you mentioned, Mark Palermo detention was one of those major surprises where I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe how this movie is being meta but being its own thing and combining the teen comedy and slasher and sci-fi um if so ever there if ever there's a movie that needs like a reevaluation, i i do think detention is one because I, I feel like when it came out finally it just sort of got lost a little bit well it came out on 10 screens so that's not like even that's not even a platform release it was like they by that by 2012 i think studios didn't even know how to do platform releases anymore and we did a junket for it but i don't think they really marketed it to those cities to make sure it performed as much as joseph khan himself rallied the troops in every city to go out and see it but uh, yeah, hopefully people still, I mean, he, he keeps sharing uh, letterbox reviews of people discovering detention. So hopefully it's still out there and still working on people. But uh, yeah, it also came like right after the Saw series had wrapped for the first time. And yeah. it had a, a brilliant parody of the Saw type and torture porn movies it inspired um the the whole sequence where the movie within the movie goes into a movie within that movie and a movie within that movie yeah that's a very uh like clever lot of it's i think i need to see that movie more and more because every time i watch it there's like something new i didn't notice until that particular time which is a mark of a a clever movie i think it also reminds me of uh ghost of mars that has a flashback within a flashback within a flashback 
<laughs> I do not remember Ghosts of Mars that well. <laughs> oh, there's a flashback within a flashback. I believe you. Flashback. It's amazing. Uh, it's amazing. That movie is uh it's it's it it's I like it. I think it's good, but um I'm not gonna tell people like gotta go see it or anything but if you do see it you'll remember that part <laughs> i saw it for the junket and we did interviews with carpenter and most of the cast i think uh ice cube did not do interviews to support that one. Oh. <laughs> well um oh the other thing i wanted to bring up too because you mentioned october 14th being like a very important day and uh i'm always amazed when you post the box office game scores you got for that day and you get a perfect score, now it makes sense because you would seem like you have a good memory for dates. Uh, I have a good memory for that kind of movie-related information, dates, run times. Yeah, I got 2016 wow. right for Bad Santa too, and that's one of my pet peeves on podcasts when people start talking about movies and they get the year wrong. <laughs> uh it's like oh just look it up um yeah see i looked it up because i'm like i didn't know <laughs> uh but i wasn't sure about that that one i i took a shot but yeah certainly while i was while i was working at the movie theater those box office weekends are pretty memorable because each one is tied to a somewhat formative experience uh i mean from my senior year of high school to freshman and sophomore year of college, even a random weekend, I can sort of remember, oh, all right. Well, certainly like, oh, October 14th, that was the day I saw Pulp Fiction and Shawshank. Um, so yeah, some of those box office games stump me uh, like there was one in the 90s where one of the top five was pokemon and even like oh, i should yeah. known when uh the first actor's name was a japanese voice actor like what else could that be but i had to keep going and it wasn't until i uncovered the tagline was like oh of course pokemon they were doing animated movies back then I so if people aren't familiar, their box office game was just there's like five movies from that a weekend, and you have to kind of guess what it is based off clues. And one of the clues is is taglines, and that's what I tend to do the most. And you know what I've noticed? Taglines have gotten more and more vague the as time went on. Because in the 80s, there'd be a tagline, it'd be like Detroit Cop goes to Beverly Hills. <laughs> and like now it would just be like freeze sucker i'm like or like you know what i mean it's just like so weird how taglines have changed over the years and yeah i can usually if i need a hint once i reveal the actor i usually get it sometimes i need two actors or actor and director yeah but, but it's, it's, it's a fun thing how most weekends past 2000 are pretty unmemorable to me and part of that is because I was an adult and your life doesn't change as much as it does when you're in high school and college. Uh, True. Movies weren't as memorable either. <laughs> Did you keep your um, movie ticket stubs when you were growing up? Uh, yeah, I started. Uh, actually, uh, I saw a, a friend start doing it and he saw far fewer movies than me. 
but I think the first one I started keeping was the last Boy Scout. So from 1991 to 94, I have a lot. Uh, and then once I started working for the theater, I had fewer because uh, I could go as part of my job. And then I have more ticket stubs from college uh, when I would pay to go on weekends. And then what for the last 25 years, I have far fewer because uh, unless I'm catching something I missed or something that didn't screen, or I decide to review the Taylor Swift movie on Thursday night, I <laughs> don't have as many stubs anymore. Sure. And it's one of those things where I look back and I was like, man, if I would have known when I was 45, I was going to have a podcast about movies, I would have kept all of my, my stubs. And then I would have had a, a much more accurate letterboxed account. Uh, should be nice. I've, ne I've never signed up for letterboxed because at this point, it's just like one more way to keep tabs of things is just a little too much. I have, <laughs> I have a pretty good, I mean, I have a pretty good record of what I've seen from what I've published, even though, you know, I, more than half of that is now scrubbed from the internet, although I still have personal records. If I really need to dig into the archives and look, did I review this or that? Um, but yeah, if I didn't do it for a living, I'd probably want to keep track on Letterboxd too. Uh, I probably now have more ticket stubs for old movies. Like if I go to the movies, it's to see uh, an old movie shown at uh the arrow or the egyptian uh, the new beverly ticket stub is a generic blue ticket so that oh. doesn't say the name of the movie on it that's a shame it feels like a collector's item if they would have done it that way uh yeah probably also a lot more hassle since they changed the program every day mm -hmm. true I, I don't begrudge them not <laughs> fancy titled tickets yeah, I don't think they're too worried about it anyway, since that I feel like everybody probably sells out over there. Yeah, it seems like it. Uh yeah. So uh you also do you have physical media that you that you own? I do. Most of it was acquired by reviewing the DVDs, Blu-rays, and now 4Ks. Um but I guess uh, DVD started in 98. So the first couple of years of DVD, I wasn't a film writer, so I did have to buy them. Um, well, that's a nice perk of, of becoming successful at writing is you get free stuff. <laughs> it is. Well, I mean, it may be a misnomer to call it free because I am doing the work of writing a review uh there are probably people that uh, do far less uh of a job at that just to get the free uh dvd or blu-ray but uh that's a good point it's I, sort of like a I, I form of payment it's sort of what it's sort of like a form of payment in a way it's sort of like you're i'm you're helping I'm us get the word it, I'm out still paying with my time i just didn't have to yeah. spend money yeah. on it but uh i think the reason i bring that up is i do have to uh 
limit myself because I did realize if I reviewed every Blu-ray or 4K that came out, I wouldn't have time to attend to the rest of my right. pain. So I I should focus on the ones I'm most likely to want to own or uh, have something to say about. But yes, I have a I have a physical media collection that will probably be a big hassle if uh, to relocate if I ever have to move. Oh no! So I ask everybody on my show uh, how they organize the movies. Is it uh, do you organize it or do you just throw them on the shelf? Alphabetical. Uh, I. I had separated DVDs and Blu-rays, so DVD alphabetical, then Blu-ray alphabetical. Now I'm mixing 4Ks in with the Blu-rays because I just don't have space to start another section. And, yeah. and I'm replacing a lot of the I'm replacing a lot of the Blu-rays with upgrades where I can. Yeah, because I feel like the the 4K cases and the Blu-ray cases are pretty much the same size anyway. So it's like the DVDs are taller. So like when you put them next to each other, it looks kind of weird because that's how I have them on my shelves. Like I'll have some DVDs with the Blu-rays and it's like so much taller. <laughs> it's, it's weird. I don't know if that would bother me. I think it happened just because I had a full... DVD, I had full DVD shelves when Blu-ray started, so I just thought I'll just start new shelves for Blu-rays, and of course, I eventually filled those too, and and could reduce some of the DVD shelves when uh, when those got upgraded to Blu-ray. Um, so, yeah, it's still as much as I try to organize, I still seem to end up putting some titles on top of the row because I I still seem to have more media than actual shelves. And yeah, that, that could be a problem. And I don't really want to buy more shelves. So, and I am pretty good at going through and getting rid of things I'm really not watching anymore. Do you do you just do you go to like a resale shop or you just find a friend and be like, this is not yours? Uh I will give it to a friend if uh if they need it. A lot of my friends already have the same <laughs> things as me. Sure. Um and yeah, uh the resale thing, uh well, I'll certainly give things to charity too although i think a lot of charities stopped ex accepting anything more advanced than dvd which blu-rays you could still give them because they came with a dvd uh so it's getting harder to donate interesting um and i in i also learned children's hospitals can only accept new and sealed items because of possible contaminants so i can't even uh give away opened kids movies um but uh like there's amoeba in la the um 
the resale uh, thing uh, has, has really changed, I think, probably because there's such so much content out there. They don't really have much business for giving for buying used items and reselling them. Yeah, uh, I've noticed that some of the um, like the Goodwills and stuff, there, there's not as much. But I surprisingly, I'm lucky enough that there's actually a couple of uh, used uh, media places here by me, including I have an art, the archive, which is Vinegar Syndrome stores, like 15 minutes from my house, which is could be very dangerous. But luckily, I don't go there as much as I probably could. Because <laughs> I'll be like, oh, I'm going to buy this, but I don't. There's also, you'd be surprised to know my family has not upgraded beyond DVD either. So really, I used to give them my old DVDs and and they would in turn pass them on when they were done with them. But uh, they but they don't have Blu-ray players, so they can't use them anymore. Yeah, I've noticed that. Uh like the DVD business for like a Walmart is still pretty, pretty good. Cause it turns out not everybody has Blu-rays, which makes sense. Cause then you usually have to like buy like a gaming system or its own thing. And if you're not really, if you don't really care that much, there's no reason to buy one, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so Fred, um, where can people go and see most of your writings online? So the best place is UPI, UPI UPI.com. My movie reviews and interviews uh, for the latest TV shows and movies will be there, uh, as well as daily news desk stories. Um, I suppose uh, you can also see my reviews through Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, I always add them to the Rotten Tomatoes page. Occasionally, Deadline hires me to do some work, so I do have some bylines on Deadline and some uh, original coverage on Rotten Tomatoes, too. Those are the main three currently, uh, with UPI really being where I have new stuff every day. And And if you want to see what the reviews of the new releases are, they'll definitely be on UPI. Yeah, that's the uh, that's where I see most of your stuff when you when you post them online, and I, I have to say that every time I see you post something, I read it. So, Thank you. so I am I am one of your your biggest fans. So I, I really appreciate that you took the time to come on my show, and I thought it was a really cool conversation. So I really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. I enjoyed it too, and I hope some of the business talk at the beginning was helpful. Uh, and uh, yeah, I appreciate. I appreciate anyone who wants to read me regularly. And again, it's so much content. I I don't share every single thing because that would just flood people. So I try to <laughs> try to limit it to uh, what do I think people will most want to either either read about uh, a review or an interview or see that I interviewed this person or wrote about this movie so you can definitely dig deeper and further if you want to see more well i I encourage everybody to uh to go uh seek out your stuff and you know and um and hopefully people 
uh, like it enough and they are inspired to also follow their movie writing dreams. Thanks again, Fred. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, I'll see you online and I hope everybody who's listening has a great day and, and uh, have a good night. You're welcome. Thanks.